Welcome to Interviews with Innocence, a podcast about spirituality, consciousness, and exploring the wisdom our children bring into this world. I believe that our very young children are our greatest teachers. After all, they're the masters of living in the present moment, bubbling in unconditional love, enjoying the messiness of life, and curious about the universe in all its dimensions. The pure essence that young children exhibit lives within all of us. My hope is that these interviews will help us discover, embrace, and connect with the sacred core of childhood that resides within each of our hearts. I am your host, Marla Hughes. Happy New Year. I want to thank all of you for supporting me and And I hope these interviews have brought inspiration and curiosity and just all of that love um, that I feel from interviewing all the people that I do. And this year, we have a lot of exciting things coming out. Uh, We're going to continue to do some interviews on animal communication, on psychedelics and the important research that is coming out. NDE stories, of course, gifted children, um, recommended books, books that have really touched my heart. And I think that you might enjoy reading astrology, signs and synchronicities, and some more on shamanism and rituals and ceremonies that we can especially do do with our young. So without further ado, um, today I'm interviewing Dr. Lisa Miller from Columbia University. I think you'll really enjoy this. Also stay tuned because at the end of the interview, I'm going to be introducing a very special guest. Thank you. Today, I am super excited to have Dr. Lisa Miller on the program. Dr. Miller is the New York Times bestselling author of The Spiritual Child and a professor in the clinical psychology program at Teachers College, Columbia University. She recently had a new book um, published, and I am so excited about this, and that's what we're going to be talking about today. The name is The Awakened Brain, The New Science of Spirituality and Our Quest for an Inspired Life. Lisa is the founder and director of the Spirituality Mind Body Institute, the first Ivy League graduate program and research institute in spirituality and psychology, and has held over a decade of joint appointments in the Department of Psychiatry at Columbia University Medical School. Her innovative research has been published in more than 100 peer-reviewed articles in leading journals, including including Cerebral Cortex, who knew there was such a thing, (laughs) the American Journal of Psychiatry, and the Journal of the American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry. Lisa, it is so wonderful to have you on the program today. Welcome. Thank you, Marla, for including me. And I think what you're doing is absolutely wonderful to have a foundationally spiritual discussion about life's very poignant and meaningful moments and topics. Thank you for including me. Absolutely. So let's just jump right in. I first want to mention to my listeners your beautiful TED Talk, a very personal story and really is 
is very much the story of this whole journey that that you you know that you are on and so I really I won't I won't spoil it but I encourage my listeners to listen to that and also being a pioneer in this in this area because your research it dives it's the first of its kind diving into the neuroscience of spiritual practice and I'm just I'm so excited because that's what that's what I'm all about too so Let's start at the beginning. Tell us a little bit about your childhood and education and that sort of thing. Well, thank you. I will say that as every single child on earth, I was a very spiritual child and we all are. We are born with a natural capacity to see into the spiritual nature of life, that you know we are guided, that we are loved, that we are held. We are born with this notion of being in genuine relationship with animals and trees of feeling the presence of God and knowing when, you know, we should turn left versus right because there's a sense of being guided. So like everybody else, I remember this very clearly in my childhood. And I am grateful to say that my mother was very much um, at home in her own spiritual awareness. So she would give voice to spiritual life. She prayed out loud. She would, with tears, say, thank you, God, for the children. I just look at you both, and I know that God is good. Constantly, she's narrated a sacred life. And she also, in addition to sort of talking the walk, she walked the walk, and she was so good to people. And, you know, every single person was like the most extraordinary person who'd ever landed on the earth. So our neighbor, you know, Mr. Lazarus, your flowers are so beautiful. And I look at them and I feel summer. And she means it. She absolutely means every word of it. And so she was present to what I might call relational spirituality, God's presence in one another. So that was my mother. And um, I'm so grateful to her. I'm so grateful I've had the chance to thank her and tell her what a difference she's made. And that I think is who we are as parents onto our children. We have enormous impact in saying, yes, what you perceive, that little whisper of a hunch, it's real. Your perception that you know, somehow you knew this was going to happen before it did. That's real. Your sense that, you know, grandma died, but she was watching over you in that moment. That's real. And, you know, that, that is incredibly powerful because when we use our own voice as parents, we lock in for our children, what is their birthright? Their innate natural spirituality takes form at the level of the brain. We pave the highways, we myelinate the cheese so that we can always get back there. And our children will always have this deep transcendent awareness. Um, so my childhood was one of, of a great amount of spiritual life integrated into every little moment. I mean, I remember you know, my mother saying, okay, we're going to run an errand, but we've never been there before. And I would say, well, don't we need a map? This was pre-GPS, right? right no right. cell phones. <laughs> and she'd say, oh, no. She said, you can kind of feel your way. Yeah. Interesting. So she trusted her inner GPS, her inner compass. And that was a way I learned to live. And that said, I was also very interested in what might be called an outward science that I, in my role models was uh, Madame Curie and Mm -hmm. um, the nurses who fought alongside the soldiers in the Crimean war and Florence Nightingale. And I, I thought that science was extraordinary. And I remember at three, my mother lifting me out of bed, you know, it was the middle of the night and saying, honey, you've got to see this. You'll remember it the rest of your life. 
and setting me down right in front of the moon landing. And you were three years old. I was three. And I remember it clear as day, Marla, clear as day. So the outward science mattered too, you know, and then the inner life of spiritual awareness and the outer witness of science could comfortably be part of one integrated whole life. They could go hand in hand. Did you find Lisa, as you got older, um, let's say even in late elementary school and older, when you had times when maybe you're you were struggling a little bit. Did you go to that higher power? How, how did you integrate this personally inside that, that inner strength yourself? So I remember in college you know, being deeply, passionately interested in what is the nature of life and where is God's presence in our lives and what is my purpose and calling at a spiritual level as every young person is really hardwired to want to know. But what I found, interestingly enough, was a very radical um, secular materialism. I found a tendency that no one talked about God and it was kind of suggested that we don't do that here. And I didn't really understand how life, or certainly a psychology, minus a loving, guiding, holding creator, how, you know, how I could understand moving through life, how I could understand the human journey and our natural psyche without holding that deep core place for God. I mean, it, it seemed to me that every step was in a sacred universe and how, I don't understand how that could be erased. So mm. I figured maybe I just haven't found the right class yet. And I took every <laughs> class I could find. And right. I, I'm not kidding, I sat in the front row waiting <laughs> to hear, looking into the professor's eye, waiting to hear about spirituality. And these were nice people and I'm sure they were great, you know, parents and good people, but but not a word. And so, you know, I was very patient and I then went on to, you know, graduate study and internship and still not a word. And it dawned on me that all in my deep bearings in life from the days of being raised by my mother and, and being raised with children, with fellow mothers who were spiritually oriented as well. It was really a, re- a reality in our world. Um, it, it had no expression in academic life. And that made no sense to me. And I figured, well, I could, I guess I could sort of take it or leave it academic life. And it seems like a big hole. But when I then stepped on to an inpatient unit with suffering people, when it was no longer an academic exercise of studying clinical psychology or coming to examine the research on mental illness, but really being there with people in terrible pain. It was really unethical, I thought, to be able to see that there's a place for spirituality, it's not here and and do nothing. You know, that seems to me that my life would have been by omission, stepping back from something that needed to be done. So I'll share with you, and, and a bit of this is in the awakened brain, that I'm, you know, a new intern, right? Just out of my doctoral program, you know, just, about to be licensed on an inpatient unit in New York. And on this inpatient unit, there was tremendous inner pain. There were people who had four, five, some of them 10 times been admitted to this inpatient unit or other inpatient units because the pain was unbearable or they'd attempted to take their life. Some of them were explosive and couldn't contain themselves. Some of them were so weighed down that they were introverted to the point of 
erasing themselves. They must disappear from plain sight. Yeah, the, the pain was unbelievable. And, and treatment at that point in the 90s was to go back to the source of pain in your life. Tell the story again and tell it one more time. No, tell it to me from the beginning, over and over. So much so that patients would literally sit down and before you even introduced yourself, they'd start their story. They were well rehearsed in what one does on the inpatient unit. And these stories were incredibly painful, but they were told in a way that was almost mechanical. They right. were simply, it wasn't healing. It wasn't healing. And in some cases, it was re-traumatizing. You know, to go back and live through that pain again, the death of a parent at a young age, you know, an assault and abuse, being a hidden child. You know, some, these were things that were so flooding that people did not seem better. They seemed overwhelmed by their own pain. And it seemed to me that, that that was not healing, that there might be a time and place for that with some other patients somewhere, but this was not the treatment of choice for the patients in front of my eyes. So I you know, was really feeling quite concerned about the damage that mainstream psychotherapy could do in the case of severe mental illness, uh, never mind not help. When, you know, as life is so beautiful and guiding, we came upon the season of Yom Kippur, which in the Jewish tradition is the time, right, of atonement, of forgiveness. Mm -hmm. And sitting there one day, first thing in the morning, 8 a.m. in our inpatient unit community meeting, one of the patients raised his hand and he said, what's planned for the high holidays? What's planned for Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur? And the unit chief sort of looked to the left and looked to the right and he said, there's nothing planned. And he, this man looked devastated, you know, that he had so much pain. He wanted Yom Kippur. He wanted a time of healing, of renewal, of a new year, right? And you know, he, what the other fellow in the room said, what, nothing, nothing. You know, he was a more explosive type. He's like, that's wrong. And he gets up, he walks out. And I thought, you know, this just isn't right. And I'm far from, you know, qualified as a rabbi, but I've certainly <laughs> as a Jew been to many Yom Kippur services. Yes. I don't know if I could lead one, but I can facilitate one. Right. And that it was really a moral imperative that, the, that their soul was crying out, you know, I'm in pain. I want Yom Kippur, this is our time of healing. And so I offered to run the service. And when I arrived on Yom Kippur, it was extraordinary. There were four Jewish patients. And on this inpatient unit, people were required to wear, you know, hospital gowns as if they were in there for an appendectomy. It was, they weren't physically ill. And, right. but, and they were kind of humiliating, you know, your fanny shows, they, they're not dignified, right? Um, Instead of wearing these horrible gowns, they were wearing beautiful clothes. Maybe it was the finest they brought with them. Maybe they had a relative drop it off. They looked, they looked like congregants at my temple. They looked absolutely whole and that they'd risen for the occasion. As we then, Marla, we went through the prayers, people were so engaged and so on. It was the exact opposite of the walled off community meeting. You know, it was showing up for one another. We went around and talked about what is Yom Kippur for you. And the woman who had erased herself said, you know, I'd always realized that Yom Kippur was a day that you can ask for forgiveness, but sitting here with you all, I realized that I can actually be forgiven. 
She'd had a spiritual breakthrough. She'd been stuck for 20 years feeling unworthy and guilty and she could be forgiven. And then the fellow who was explosive, he was actually the one that kept us on pace with the service. And in the sound and the song and the beauty of the prayers that he'd said all his life, he held the body of the service of the prayer. So I saw the equal opposite. I saw the healing, whatever was directly opposite of the suffering of the disability, I saw in wholeness, in light. And I realized that I think mental illness is an occlusion of the whole soul. And what spiritual life does is bring forward the radiance, the sunshine of the full soul. Uh, Thank you so much for sharing that. And what a great intro into you then becoming a you know, full on doctor, I guess it was, you said before you took your boards or is it, is that right? Yeah. Yeah. And then you began your research into this, Mm -hmm. but you were going to say something, go ahead. Well, from that experience, I realized that mental health minus spirituality didn't make sense. Exactly. Exactly. It's simply, now there might be a few people out there for whom it does, but for many, and I would say most, mental health needs a spiritual heart. It needs to have at its center, really a spiritual core. And that's the beauty of it, that you stepped forward and, and brought that, you know, brought in, brought into that little sacred circle. Oh, wow. What a touching story. So let's, let's move on. Then you began to research this from an academic standpoint and with specifically spirituality and depression. And that was in 2012. And can you tell us a little bit about, about that? You say that spirituality and depression, this is such a great example coming after this, um, after your story, but are two sides of one door. Mm-hmm. And that depression is really a knock on the door a knock opening to become more awakened and expanded. I mean, this is profound. So can you tell tell us a little bit about that? And then the brain scans that that Mm -hmm. you've done in this area. Right. So I I saw that there was really an occlusion of of the soul's voice, of the soul's presence in people's lives. That the soul's in there, of course, but that you know, whether it was abuse or disappointment or a negative narrative in their mind, there was a sense in which the presence of the infinite, of the love was not foremost. And and they felt cut off from a deep personal relationship with God or their higher power, whatever word they might use. And what Yom Kippur had done was reignite that deep, I can be forgiven. I am in relationship. It felt real, dynamic, lived relationship with God. Or some people say Jesus, Hashem, the universe, whatever their word is, but a loving, guiding spirit. So ultimate spirit. So that said, I thought, well, you know, I've always loved numbers. I love patterns and numbers. I, you know, the interest in science that you graciously asked me about from childhood. Well, it's also the case that if you want to change the field in mental health, it's the language of science is published peer review research that says, you know, this is the portrait of mental health. This is a validated treatment. This is a form of true distress. So it seemed to me that if, or if I really wanted to change, help be part of changing the field, that clinical science was an important piece in addition to integrated 
treatments that engage the spiritual core. And so I set to work for about 20 plus years, I guess now closer to 25. And in time, fellow labs have as well. We have a robust field of spirituality in mental health, spirituality in recovery, renewal, spirituality in trauma, that it's there. The science is there and the findings are pretty staggering. And so back in my early days, one of the first things that we found was that in a nationally representative sample, so this isn't my data or his data or her data, this is a nationally representative sample. We, the people, Americans, if a young person, a teen has a strong spiritual life, he or she is 80% less likely to become addicted. Now, there's nothing in the clinical sciences that say, my child is four-fifths less likely to become addicted. You know, I would stand outside of Walgreens for five hours for that pill, but this is in us, right? Similarly, you know, strong spirituality decreased by 60%, major depression, the type of depression where we power down, we can't get out of bed, not just feeling depressed, but edgy and angry and unable to function, the popple in our lives. So this was the level of how much spirituality changes the rest of our lives was so great. I mean, it was blinding. Um, And I, I, again, once again, I couldn't believe it's like when I looked forward, you know, in the front row in college waiting to hear, why isn't this on the front page of the New York times that each day we get up and read about spirituality, you know, it's changing our lives. So that said to me, there's a lot of work to be done here. A lot of work because it is so foundational to who we are as a person. And indeed in time, you know, my lab and fellow labs established some major understandings first and foremost, that just as we are physical beings and emotional beings and cognitive beings, every single one of us at birth is a spiritual being. We know that through twin studies, we look at twins raised together, twins raised apart, factor out the degree of commonality as a function of shared genes and environment. And so it is a fact that the capacity for spiritual awareness is innate. It is one third innate, which means it is two thirds environmentally impacted. So the beautiful story you invited me to share of my mother, that's part of the two thirds of the environment. It says, yes, this is real. And yes, we pray out loud. And yes, we do this here. And it it is part of how life itself is built. It's embedded in life, spiritual reality. Wow. I'm a twin. (laughs) Oh, beautiful. Marla, lovely. I'm an identical twin. And and interestingly, my, I'll just throw this in. It's on topic. Um, My twin sister is a nurse practitioner at Indiana University Mm. in Bloomington. And we were just having this conversation the other day. We were at, I was actually talking about this interview that was coming up with, Mm -hmm. with you. And I was asking her, she was talking about the extreme anxiety and depression that Mm. she sees in so many students that come into her, into her office. And I asked her, do you ever, you know, give them something about yoga or about, Mm. do you ever ask them like if they pray? Mm. (laughs) And she looked at me and she's very spiritual too. Mm -hmm. And she just smiled and she said, no, we don't, but something needs to be done. We just Mm. kind of give them drugs, you know? And so it was just really 
really interesting to, you know, hear her experience with that. But I think it really is changing because of these studies that, that, you know, you've been doing. Well, I know, but I think you're saying something very important, Marla, which is, it sounds like, of course, your sister is spiritual because you're spiritual. Yes, right? yes, yes. And you're, yes. And you, that's beautiful. And she sees the power that spiritual life can have. And I think what we need, what we're doing now as a mental health field is together using this roadmap of science, you know, almost a blueprint of science to say, mm -hmm. here's a data-driven approach to healing and renewal. And it has at the center, rekindling our spiritual light. You know, what I call awakened awareness in the book, I, rekindling our birthright. We all have a spiritual brain. It's there, but it's dormant and latent for a lot of people. And it does not take much to tap in. You know, it can be dusting off an old rusty prayer from our childhood. It can be embodied in a relationship where if you share with me in the first person, a story of your spiritual path, one of miracle, one of connection and transcendent relationship, it wakes up in me. Yes. I mean, you talk the walk and walk the, you know, there's so many ways in and it, because it is who we are, but the problem has been that we have put a big no in the middle of culture, right? We threw religion out of the public square 40, 50 years ago. And with that, the spiritual baby with the bathwater. And we must reclaim our birthright, which is speaking in the first person of our own spiritual truth and being interested in one another's first person experience. That is pluralism. It is inclusive. We've managed to have inclusivity around race and gender and orientation. Can we have inclusivity around people's own spiritual path, you know, spiritual diversity? And I think that we're there. I think things are so painful right now for young people, so painful. And they're primarily painful because they have an atrophied spiritual core. We have not supported in young adults this natural birthright. And when we know that the spiritual core is 80% protective against addiction, 60% against depression, we know, we know our marching orders. It's clear. The science paves a clear direction. We must support the spiritual core. And how humanity would change if all children were raised from the very beginning with with all of what you just said or really very much like your your mama was right to to have that um so let's talk a little bit about the scientific side of this and mm -hmm. what you found um on the scans that you mm -hmm. that you did and tell us a little bit about that well i think the most important finding is that when in the path of suffering, you know, we dig deeper, you know, dear God, what are you trying to show me here? You know, even when I'm not feeling it, you know, okay, I'm in terrible pain. I, I don't even want to get out of bed. Dear God, thank you for giving me another day. What, how might I fulfill your path for me? You know, when we take a spiritual response to the pain in our heart, to the most excruciating moments, a spiritual response will naturally, you know, with God's will, of course, naturally rekindle our spiritual, our awakened awareness, our spiritual awareness, that there is a process where in our most painful, when we bottom out effectively in our darkest hour, we have breakthroughs. It's simply how we're made. And when this happens, when we build a spiritual response to loss and suffering, what we find over time is that 
we build the regions of the brain, the spiritual regions of the brain to be stronger, effectively building the muscle. And it's marked by cortical thickness, processing power across regions in the brain associated with perception and reflection and orientation. The spiritual brain gets more powerful, more able to see the go-to place, the new normal. So much so that when we invite people into the lab who've recovered from depression through a deepening of spiritual life, not only do they show a thicker cortex, a greater, stronger spiritual brain, they, live, they give off a wavelength, high amplitude alpha. And high amplitude alpha is the same wavelength given off in nature from the earth's crust up one mile. It is the wavelength of life itself. When we are in a state of spiritual awareness, our brain vibrates with that of all life, with creation. So our felt sense of oneness with all life is real. It is real in this deep foundational way. And it is picked up and mirrored in the common wavelength of alpha or Schumann's wow. resonance. Wow. It's, it's beautiful. It's who we are. And I call that God's footprint. I yes. really do. You know, yes. I, I can't full that. on tell you what God's about, but I can see the footprint <laughs> in the sand. Yeah. And a footprint in the sand. So that the spiritual response to suffering is neuroprotective of subsequent depression you found. Yes. Now that the brain is built and we are sort of the go-to place is one of deep spiritual connection and awareness, we are girded against subsequent depressions. How much so? We're 75% less likely to have another deep depression. Wow. And that goes up to 90% if our life is really rough or if we're gen genetically predisposed. Those of us at high risk for depression are 90% less likely to have a painful power down pothole or major depression if we build a spiritual response. Literally, it is, we, we, be, we are neuroprotected against recurrence. Wow. And not only that, but life is far more expansive because we see into life and instead of thinking, I've got to control my life, why did life do this to me? I wanted A, B, and C, I wanted that job, I wanted that guy, I wanted that apartment, I wanted that something, and it didn't happen. We move from what I call achieving awareness, the sort of tactical, strategic, I want it, here's how I prepare, and I should close the deal, I should get it. We move from that bowling alley type perception of achieving awareness to awakened awareness where we are in dialogue and say, what is life showing me now? Right. Dear God, what do you wish for me? What am I to see here? Please open my heart so I can perceive that which you show me. Deep, sacred dialogue. And life opens up a zillion fold and it opens up beyond. And we see new doors that we didn't even know existed. I would have told you there wasn't even a door there. And through that door, I meet my spouse. I find a job that is truly right for me. I find a best friend. I go on the outing of my life, something that I didn't know even was there. Because in achieving awareness, we have no more information than what we have today going backwards. You know, what I want is what I think I want because I grew right. up thinking that, you know, but here is a world where we get sort of a, an inspirational tug or a mystical experience or a deep inner knowing. That catch in the catcher's mitt, that receptive, inspired form of knowing has information, direction, doorways that only over time will unfurl to reveal their full meaning. All we can know is trusted. And I'll tell you something, Marla, women live this way anyway. 
But what we need to do now as women is say, okay, great. We had the first wave of feminism that gave us rights and then we got jobs. Right now, our way of knowing needs to be in the center of society. Every one of us who already understands life as a deep dialogue with God or our higher power or what is life showing us now. In remarkable podcasts such as yours, in school rooms and hospitals and boardrooms, wherever we work and speak, because this is the way of living that is sustainable, that is buoyant, that can move through COVID and much, much worse. It's a way of saying, how do I not paddle like, you know, no tomorrow on top of a tidal wave, but instead rise up and ride with the tidal wave because that is what life is showing me. Women do this, but, you know, I'm telling you, I, I accidentally left a chapter from the awakened brain in the public library ladies room. <laughs> and I thought, oh no, I love chapter seven in the Westport ladies room. So I go back and I'm knocking on the door and it's locked, someone's in there. So I think, okay, you know, I'll just wait a minute, two minutes, five minutes, knock, knock. I'm, I'm worried that maybe someone's ill or maybe someone's passed out. So I knock a little harder. Finally, 15 minutes later, a woman comes out and I said, I'm sorry to keep knocking. I, I just, I left my chapter in there. And she said, oh, you wrote this? She said, I locked the door because I was reading it. She said, you know, <laughs> we live this way all the time. I live this way all the time, said the woman in the ladies room. I've never seen it written down. So what I am saying is that this is ours. Science mirrors this as being evident and factually correct that the brain is hardwired to perceive a deep dialogue with God. We are built as human beings to be whole and healthy and perform and fit and good to one another. When we use our natural neuroseed of awareness that brings us into deep dialogue with God, our higher power, whatever word is ours. And science says, yes, in MRI studies, this is a fact. And science says, yes, in genotyping studies, this is a fact. And in long-term clinical course studies, we are healthier. We are more resilient. We don't just get better back to baseline. We are renewed. We are made more through post-traumatic spiritual growth, but it needs to be that we live life on spiritual bedrock. Women bring ourselves now to our kids, to our jobs, because mm -hmm. to be buoyant in this very volatile world requires spiritual footing. It is an act of awakened awareness to be in dialogue with a volatile world. Wow. Beautifully said. So Lisa, let's talk a little bit about, some people might be saying right now, so how do I, we've been talking about prayer, but how do I tap into this? And, you know, I love talking about creativity and dreams and visions and imagination and mm -hmm. remembering the golden rule. So all first those. of all of those, all those. things, yes. Those. So how do you feel humanity would change if the young grew up with these things interweaved into their daily lives, validated, encouraging curiosity, trusting their intuition, those sorts of things. So I actually know I have tremendous hope, not a wish for hope, but well-founded hope. I see the teens and the 20 year olds already have an implicit awakened awareness. They yes. already see that life has an underlying unity, a consciousness field, that we're all part of one family of life. They deliberately try to speak with love to one another. They are 
careful to be inclusive and to speak to the soul, to not, you know, factor people as a function of variable A, B, and C about their demographics. You know, they, they are walking a spiritual walk and they're searching for the language to talk the walk and they're searching for the science and the models and the way of life. So I have every reason to think that Gen Z will inherit the earth and they will not need to solve all of our problems because they won't create all of our problems. They won't right. dump trash in the ocean. If you know that the ocean and you are in some deep way in the field of love and consciousness, one, we're made of water. Yes. You know, PMH Atwater has been on the show a few times and Good. She, Wonderful. Talks, she talks a lot about, you know, the, the millennials coming in today. And, and in one of her interviews, she said that they're in a way these kids are mirroring our generation, but they're saying, no, you know, we're going to do it different. You know, we, we're going to do it. You didn't quite do it right. You know, climate change, families, all, all of this and everything that we're talking about. And I couldn't agree with you more that they are, they're going to be pioneers in themselves in this, in this area. And it's so, so important. The other thing is in the awakened brain, I have practices. And so if yes. you, here's the, here's the awakened brain. Yes. And if thank you. Go, you. Yeah, <laughs> if you go to the back, the back are scientific references. So you can go on Google scholar, you can go on Medline, you can go on psych info and get the original articles. They're all listed in the reference section. And there's practices in the awakened brain. And, and, and if you'd like Marla, we, would you be interested in doing one now, perhaps? Absolutely. Oh, good. Okay. Let's go good. for it. Good. Um, so very often people say, you know, I'd like to have an awakened brain, but I don't know how. Or, you know, there was no religion in my home. No one talked about spirituality. Spirituality looks good, but I just don't feel very spiritual. And science says that every single one of us is spiritual. It's a quarter inch under the surface and we can tap that. And here's a way I always honor my teachers, Dr. Gary Weaver was the one who taught me this practice, um, which helps us tap in and awaken our natural spiritual awareness. So shall we, shall we try? Yes, let's do it. Okay. I so have my I'm, candle. Oh, lovely. <laughs> lovely. I'm ready. Beautiful. Lovely. Okay. So what I'm going to ask is that we maybe clear our inner space with five breaths, and then I'll walk us through a 90 second visualization. I invite you to set before you a table. This is your inner table. And to your table, you may invite anyone, living or deceased, who truly has your best interest in mind. Anybody living or deceased who truly has your best interest in mind. And with them all sitting there, ask them if they love you. And now you may invite your higher self, the part of you that is much more than what you have or don't have, what you've done or not done, your true 
eternal higher self. And ask you if you love you. And now finally, you may invite your higher power, whatever word you use, however you know, your higher power. And ask your higher power if they love you. And now with all of those people sitting there right now, what do they need to tell you? What do you need to know? What do they need to share with you right now? When you're ready, I invite you back. This is your council and they are always there for you. Who shows up may change depending on where you are in your journey. And you may ask them what is on your heart at any point in your road. Beautiful. Thank you so much for that. I'm so grateful that you felt connected through it. Yes, yes. Well, Lisa, thank you so much for coming on the show today. And um, is there anything that I haven't asked that you'd like to share or anything you'd like to shout to the world? <laughs> well, Marla, what I have felt today being with you is tremendous love in your presence, tremendous love that you emanate love and that God's love is in and through us who convening this space here. It's, it's a sacred space. And I want to thank you and honor the work you're doing and committing to in your path and all who are with us today for joining us in this deep field of love. Thank you. So if, if people um, want to find you, how would they go about doing that? Good. Thank you. Well, so you could just Google um, LisaMillerPhD.com. LisaMillerPhD.com. Or you could do the Awakened Brain. Yes. The Awakened Brain and Lisa Miller. And it pulls up a lot of discussions and videos that share in the work. And sometimes it helps to have bite-sized pieces when we're getting our feet wet. Um, so the awakened brain, Lisa Miller, um, and then, you know, on my website, lisamillerphd.com, there's some discussions, there's some videos, but there's also, um, announcements of times that we'll be convening. And as Marla, as you and I had discussed at Columbia university, I started the spirituality mind body Institute, yes. which is a place of convening for spirituality and education, spirituality and mental health and treatment and prevention. So all ways in which we as healers and teachers and guides for one another can bring forward this deep point of understanding and focus that we are naturally spiritual beings and what that means for how we encourage and help one another. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much. I suggest to my listeners, you run out and get this book because there are so many, um, oh, it's just filled with 
amazing information and also exercises that I've been doing and, and transformative. So thank you so much. And you stay warm back there on the East coast. (laughs) Marla, thank you. Thank you for so much that you contribute to our world and bless you in the season of love. Thank you, Lisa. And have a great rest of the day. (laughs) Okay. Thank you. As I promised, I have a special guest today um, to chat with you, a friend and, and a colleague, and his name is Levi Anderson. And I'm just going to let Levi tell a story about how he got involved with, with working, with interviews with innocence, and his journey along the way. I think you'll find it very enjoyable. Thank you. Thank you, Marla. I really appreciate that. So to give the listeners a little bit of a background on how Marla and I met, I was living in California at the end of 2019, and I was just in a really difficult place in my life, you know, having no direction, was just totally lost, kind of just coasting through the motions of life. And I first started working for Marla, just kind of doing some odd little jobs, helping with the dogs, house sitting, that sort of stuff. And one day she had asked me to help her find an editor for this podcast that she was starting. And so I found her a couple names and sent them to her. But then I just kind of got to thinking that, you know, I consider myself to be a pretty technical savvy person so I told Marla like why don't you just send me the information and all the show elements and let's just see if I can figure it out and I did and everything you know went well and it's just so fascinating looking back you know when I first started doing this I just saw this as you know a little side job you know something I could do to make a little bit of extra money and It has turned into something that has changed my whole entire life. I grew up in a very evangelical Christian church where I was told exactly what to believe, how to believe. There was no, there was really not much space for curiosity and questioning and Um, discovery. And through listening to Marla's podcasts, you know, obviously, there's so much about the universe and, you know, this world that we will, you know, never have answers for in this lifetime. But what I have come to accept and know, essentially, is that life and love And our consciousness exists far beyond the boundaries of this world that we live in. And when you know that and you have that sort of personal experience with the divine yourself, oh my gosh, that just changes everything about how you live your life. I have, 
I view the world and myself through an entirely different, much more beautiful lens. And it's taught me how to slow down, appreciate and find the magic that exists in the present moment. And it's taught me that and it's shown me that heaven is here right now with us. And we have access to the beauty of that. And it's just a slight shift in perspective. And I think when you have this personal experience with the divine, it almost opens up, for me at least, it has opened up this really beautiful connection to divine wisdom. And through that, I've been able to find guidance unlike anything that I thought was even possible. And it's just been a really, really beautiful experience just, you know, watching myself kind of step into my higher self and it's just a really exciting place to be in. But when it comes down to it, it's taught me the importance of curiosity and how much we open ourselves up to when we can see the world through eyes that are not judgmental and through eyes that don't think they know everything. <laughs> and I think this time of the year is just a really beautiful time to reflect on everything that you know we have learned. And it's also a beautiful time of the year to evaluate and reflect upon how we have loved and really set our intentions for how are we going to love going forward in every moment of our lives and be intentional about how we are going to love and put that love out into the universe. So I just wanted to take this opportunity to just thank you, Marla, for everything that you're doing and how much you are inspiring me and all of our listeners. And I am just so excited to see how things are going to unfold going forward. So thanks again, Marla. Thank you so much for listening in today. If you want to learn more about the show, you can find us at interviewswithinnocence.com and on Facebook or Instagram at Interviews with Innocence. Please write me a message. Tell me what you liked and let me know what else you would like to hear. I would love to hear from you. And if you liked what you heard, please leave us an iTunes rating and review. It helps other listeners find the show. Thank you. Thank you.